Good morning, church. Let's go to the Lord together and beg him for his help in this time. Father, we are so thankful that you delight to give good gifts to your children. You want to give us the things that are needful for our souls. And I thank you that you've already been doing that this morning. As we lift our voices together and sing, whether we are singing songs of praise because we're in a time of rejoicing or whether we are in a time of sorrow, limping in here um, and battled but ready to be strengthened by comrades. Lord, I thank you that you meet us right here in this place and that you care for each person here. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to show a care for each person as I preach this word. I pray, God, for grace to preach in the power and the demonstration of your Holy Spirit that you would be in this place with us by your spirit, that your spirit would be felt, that your presence would be welcomed heartily among us, that all your saints would be crying out, fill us with your Holy Spirit, because we need to live this Christian life for your glory. Lord, so give each person here a morsel. Give each person here something for their souls and glorify your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... After a summer in the Psalms, we are back in Acts, back in action. In the book of Acts, um, for those of you who were with us this past year, we, we got roughly halfway through the book of Acts, and uh, they took a summer break in the Psalms, and now we're picking up in Acts, hoping to walk the rest of the way uh, through it. So it's fitting for us now to recap a little bit uh, where we've been in the book of Acts, the significance of the book of Acts. I won't spend a long, long time re rehearsing all of it, but I will rehearse some of it. Uh, You'll remember that the book of Luke and the book of Acts, it's a prequel and a sequel. Those two things belong together. Same author wrote them. And so Luke wrote the book of Luke, that bears his name, and the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so the way they're put together is you have the book of Luke and you have um, Jesus traveling to Jerusalem to accomplish the greatest task of his life his death on the cross. And so all this ministry happening and being traced and recorded meticulously um, up until Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead. And they're told at the end of the book of Acts to wait in Jerusalem until you receive what? Power from on high, the Holy Spirit, okay? And that's where the book of Acts picks up. The book of Acts is designed to be a continuation of what Jesus did and taught through the apostles, And so that's what we get to see. That's what we've been able to see so far in the book of Acts. There they are in Jerusalem at the beginning of the book of Acts. And uh, just as Luke, you know, traveled to Jerusalem, or the book of Luke brings us to Jerusalem, the book of Acts is going to bring us from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's that's the flow um, historically. And so when we're at the beginning of the book of Acts, we get a record of Jesus's ascension. So after he was raised from the dead, spent time uh, with his disciples, he he ascended on high, took his seat of victory at the right hand of his father. And we were told that they had to wait for him to ascend because it's when he would ascend that he would then pour out his provision, the Holy Spirit on his church. And the church dare not set out on such a risky mission without this provision. But now when the Spirit was poured out, Acts chapter 2, the church is now ready 
to embark on this mission, this mission that is still being carried out to this day. And the theme verse in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so that's what we've been tracing out in the book of Acts. They were in Jerusalem, and we got to see this infant church come into existence in, in the early chapters of the book of Acts. We got to see the church flourish and grow there. And then in chapter 7, we got to see um, the first martyrdom of, of Stephen, faithful saint with this angelic countenance. But it was at him dying by being stoned that God used that, as it were, to kind of knock the chicks out of the nest, right? That persecution spread the gospel. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the gospel spreads through persecution. And so we see throughout the book of Acts, the gospel is being proclaimed, and then there's persecution. Through proclamation and persecution, the gospel continues to take off and take root everywhere that it goes. And we get to see churches planted. We get to see churches planted all along the way. And so one of the things that makes the book of Acts not just thrilling, but just genuinely interesting is that it gives us the history behind so much of the rest of the New Testament. So there's all these letters in the New Testament, right? Think um, Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, did I say Corinthians yet? You know, so you have all these letters that are written to churches, but these churches exist because what happened in the book of Acts. So we get to see the founding, the planting, um, the coming into existence of these different churches. And right before our passage for today, we watched the, the Philippian church come into existence. Paul comes in, this rugged apostle and preacher, into this place that hasn't heard the gospel. He goes down to the riverside. There's a few people gathered there. He shares the gospel with them. Number of them are converted. One of them's named Lydia. Remember, God opened her heart to listen to what Paul was saying. And she believed. And right there on that riverside, a church was birthed, right? And then Paul and Silas get thrown into prison, right? And they're singing praise to the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. They're continuing to preach while in chains. And uh, earthquake happens. God ends up, this jailer's gonna take his life because he knows if these prisoners escape, they're going to take his life, so he might as well do it himself, he's thinking. But Paul says, don't harm yourself. Everybody is in here. And he comes and falls down. What shall I do to be saved? Paul preached the gospel to him and to his entire household. They were saved by repentance and faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A church was planted in Philippi. So then we can go back and read the book of Philippians and go, whoa, that's that's where that came from. Blood, sweat, and tears went into that church coming into existence. We get to see this over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And as we come to our next passage, we get to see the background for two letters in the Bible, First and Second Thessalonians, right? The church of Thessalonica is going to be planted, and we get to see how that happened. This rugged apostle preacher is still traveling along his way through the Mediterranean world, the known world at the time, 
bringing good news with him, a bag of seeds, as it were, on his hip, and he's throwing them out as he goes and getting in a lot of trouble for it along the way, as we're going to see. And so we get, to, we get to see the church planted in Thessalonica, and we're going to see that when, when the gospel comes to a place, it changes everything. It flips the world upside down. So here's the outline for this morning where, where I want to take us in God's word. I want us to see, and you'll see this very simply laid out, the gospel proclaimed in Thessalonica in verses 1 through 9. So we're just going to walk through that so you can see, see it in action. And then, um, then the gospel proclaimed in Berea in verses um, 10 through 15. And then what I want to do, and I think you're going to see why we're meant to do this, but what I want to do is after seeing the gospel proclaimed in Thessalonica, then in Berea, I want us to compare and contrast how the gospel is received in both of those places. Okay? So this will be a good mental exercise for you. As I'm walking through these first two sections, be thinking, okay, what are the similarities in how the gospel is received? But what are the differences? Are there any glaring differences? Um, do that with me as we walk through these sections. And uh, so after comparing these responses, looking at those similarities and differences, we're going to step back and just kind of ask, what can we learn? And I want to spend a significant amount of time just on application at the end. What can we draw from what we're learning? But the better you see it, the better you're going to be able to apply it to your own heart. So let's begin by seeing the gospel proclaimed in Thessalonica. Again, we're looking at Verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, that's a mouthful, isn't it, Sawyer? Bless your heart for reading that this morning. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And so they're traveling now um, on the northern Mediterranean, and uh, they had just gone to Philippi. And so now we're going like a day or two journey between these different places that are being mentioned. So Amphipolis, Apollonia seem like they're kind of traveling through these places, but then he's going to linger in Thessalonica, and then he's going to go from there, a couple days journey on foot, to Berea. And then from there, we're going to see later on, he's going to take a much longer journey. We don't know if it's by land or by sea to Athens, which is going to be quite a bit further. But just a lot of travel details here that we're getting. They're in Thessalonica now, and it says, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And so there's a big Jewish population in Thessalonica. And it says, and Paul went in to the synagogue, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, pausing there for a moment. So the Sabbath day, so we're talking what we would think of Saturday. So Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. That's a Sabbath day. And so during that time, there would be a normal service where people would gather. Paul is attending these services and uh, he looks forward to that. When there's a Jewish population there, there's a synagogue. That's going to be a first place that he goes. You notice that it says, um, as was his custom, right? He went into the synagogue, this gathering place, uh, this worship center of the Jews. And he went in as was his custom. So this was his custom to go into a place and uh, this is Paul picking low-hanging fruit, okay? So if there's a synagogue, that's going to be the first stop. Why? 
Well, because he knows if he goes into the synagogue, he's going to be able to reason with people on a level that he's not going to be able to reason with just anybody. So there's some common ground that he has with these Jews. For one, they believe that the scriptures are the inspired word of God and that they are authoritative, right? So the Old Testament scriptures, they had the same book, right? And so he felt like, well, we have the same foundation. We can, we can um, have reasonable dialogue because we, we share this conviction about the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. So they have, that, they have that in common. They also have in common the fact that in those scriptures, there was the anticipation of a Messiah coming, an anointed one, a savior who's going to redeem and rescue the people of God. And so um, they're anticipating that. Paul knows that. So they already have the assumption of a Messiah. Boy, that's a lot to work with already there, isn't it? And so Paul goes um, in there and he wants to, over subsequent uh, Sabbath days, reason with them from the scriptures. And we can, it's good to just highlight here that you can reason from the scriptures because the faith that Paul is proclaiming is a reasonable faith. He understands how reasonable it is. And so he is going to reason with them, seek to persuade them of what? It says, verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaimed you, is the Christ. So he's going into the synagogues, meeting them on common ground here. Okay, let's look at these shared scriptures together. And then he's going to show them that this Christ that they both assume would come um, would, in the scriptures themselves, it says that he would suffer and die and that he would rise from the dead. And so Paul is trying to show them that because a lot of people at the time only emphasized the fact that the Messiah was going to be a triumphant king that's going to come and conquer. And so they kind of had um, tunnel vision when it comes to the Messiah. There would be uh, ultimate conquering. There would be an ultimate reign, but it was going to come about in a way that was altogether different than what they're used to. The Messiah would die and he would rise from the dead. And so he's spending time in the scriptures, and you could imagine him taking them to different places uh, in the Old Testament that they would maybe be familiar with, but didn't connect it with the Messiah's uh, destiny to die and to rise. So, for example, he could take them to a place like Psalm 22, a poetic description of the Christ and the sufferings that he would experience, tremendous sufferings. It recounts how he would be mocked, how he would be surrounded by his enemies how his hands and feet would be pierced and how lots would be cast for his clothing. All of these right there in the scripture, seeing the Christ would suffer and die and a people would come into existence from that. Um, he might take them to Isaiah 53. He would most certainly take them to Isaiah 53. If you have your Bibles, let's, let's just read this. Let's, let's go back. Let's imagine we were in the synagogue and Paul He's just taking them back here and say, open the scroll to Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah 53. Look at what the Christ would have to endure. I'm slowing down on this point because this is, this is so significant to what Paul's trying to accomplish, what God's trying to accomplish everywhere and here in Thessalonica in particular. So Psalm, or Isaiah 53, and I'm going to start in verse 3. And Paul is arguing that this is about the Christ. 
the Christ you're anticipating, the Christ would suffer and die and rise. So starting verse three, speaking of the Christ, the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a, like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man, in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We continue through verse 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to open grief. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see, this is a hint at resurrection, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Isn't that beautiful? So Paul is in the synagogue saying, it's right there in your book. This shared book that we have, this authoritative word that we have, it's right there. The Christ would suffer and he would rise. One more shorter text, Zechariah 12.10. You don't have to turn there, um, but listen to this. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn, speaking about the death of Christ, the time when he was pierced. Time will fail us to use any more examples than that, but at least we get a little flavor of what Paul would be doing in the synagogue. He's reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Christ whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so here's what's happening. He's proclaiming the Christ and proclamation doesn't always just look like preaching. Sometimes it looks like just reasoning with somebody on the basis of what God has said and revealed about his way of salvation. And so Paul is reasoning. He's seeking to persuade them of the truth of the Christ and he's helping them see that this long anticipated Christ who their own scriptures said would suffer, die and be raised matches the description of Jesus Christ who did all these incredible things that no one has ever done and then he died just the way that the Christ 
was said to have died in the Old Testament scriptures, and then he rose from the dead. And Paul's saying, I'm an eyewitness of it. I know many other eyewitnesses of it. There's a lot of people still alive even right now in our day that are eyewitnesses of it. This is not just some myth that was spread. We have seen it. We saw, watched him die, and we've seen him alive. And Paul's saying, I just want, I'm here as a messenger of God to connect the dots for you. Your Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. So believe upon him. There's no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. So that's what Paul was doing in the synagogue as his custom. Explaining and proving the Christ. Then it continues. This Christ whom I proclaim to you is, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So you can say the gospel is put out there and there's a positive response to the gospel. It's highlighting here the positive response. Many people believed. They followed Paul and Silas were like, this is true. I see it in the scriptures. Some of the Jews themselves were persuaded. There was also some Greeks, some Gentiles that were God-fearers, that were sympathetic to Judaism, that were attending the synagogue and they're hearing the gospel and they're going, I believe that this is the Christ, that this is the Messiah. And uh, notice that it says this, which was often the case in the day. There was leading women in the higher echelons of society and, and some of them have believed, which is not really good for some of the Jews if they're thinking like, hey, we're just trying to build this thing here. And uh, now all of a sudden, some people with high standing influence in I'm sure they were thinking deep pockets are now going a different direction, right? They're going a different direction. So there is a really beautiful, positive response of faith to the gospel message being proclaimed here in Thessalonica. But that's not the only response. Verse 5, when we talked about the, the deep pockets walking away, but the Jews were jealous right? They were jealous because of the influence, um, because they're losing influence, uh, because uh, people that are of some notoriety are now going to be leaving the synagogue. There's things that are really grinding on them. They are jealous of this loss of their own influence. And it says this, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, if you can't beat them, beat them, right? If you can't win the argument in the synagogue, if truth is not in your side, forget truth. Go pick out some people among the rabble and start a mob and a riot. That's, I guess, the other alternative. <laughs> I don't know. That's what they decided to do. So these jealous Jews taking some of the wicked men among the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Jason is one who was hosting right? Showing hospitality to Paul and Silas and Timothy. He's showing hospitality to them. It's going to be costly. What a powerful act of love here. What a good example of the sermon from a few weeks ago. Jason willing to stand with these gospel bringers. Um, but they, but um, he's in trouble for it here. And so they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, 
especially thinking of Paul and Silas here, they dragged Jason, the one who hosted them, and some of the brothers, the others who had believed now, boy, did they sign up for this? What's the biblical answer to that question? Yep, they signed up for it. And notice this, these are baby Christians already standing for the gospel and standing alongside of gospel messengers. Isn't that encouraging? So they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down. Pause there for a second. They're not wrong. (laughs) They're not wrong. This gospel goes into places and it flips people's worlds upside down. And as you keep going to places, it flips the world upside down. It started in Jerusalem. Now we're in Thessalonica. And the gospel is spreading. The world is being flipped. People's lives are dramatically changing for good. Not everybody's thrilled about it, but the people that are going to heaven are pretty thrilled about it at this point. So they're bringing them saying, the whole world's been flipped upside down. Um, And now they've come here. And Jason, this guy, has received them. Jason's like, yeah, I did. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. (laughs) Now that just kind of seems like, oh, that's interesting. It's kind of a big charge. All right, so one, they're going to be charged for disturbing the peace. Another accusation that's being brought is that they're trying to usurp the authority of Caesar, which is only partially true (laughs) because they're not trying to just establish some earthly kingdom here the way that they're so used to it, right? And so they could just as easily flip a coin at the same, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, but give to God and the risen Christ what belongs to him, right? And so he's bringing this gospel message and, um, but they're trying to get them in trouble for treason, which could be a capital punishment here, right? And so you can't beat your enemies with truth, twist some things, and do your best to get them as much trouble as possible to try to get rid of your enemies. This is the strategy here. And the people of the city, uh, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed. I kind of find that a little humorous. They were disturbed when they heard these things. And when, uh, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go, probably as a way of saying, he can't preach here anymore. You can't disturb the peace anymore. This is a promise that you will not disturb the peace. And they know there's no way of keeping the peace around here. This is, yeah, things have already hit the fan. So they're going to send Paul on to another way. So you've heard the gospel being proclaimed in Thessalonica. Okay, we just walk through that. Now let's go a couple days journey on foot to Berea and we're going to, yeah, hear the gospel proclaimed there, see it unfold. And I want you again to be listening for what's similar to what happened at Thessalonica and then what's different from what happened at Thessalonica. Okay, so here we go. Picking up chapter 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And I just love this. These, these brothers, there's, I mean, they've got to be mostly made up of newer believers that are just totally invested in the gospel going forth at this point. From the beginning stages of the Christian life, we're meant to be invested in the advancement of the gospel. So these brothers immediately sending them out by night to Berea, a couple days journey by foot. And when they arrived, they went into, you guessed it, 
the Jewish synagogue to pick some low-hanging fruit, right? Where they have all this common ground. Like, hey, let's, it's going to get harder. Let's just take some of the easy stuff right away, right? And if this is easy, whew, what's the hard stuff like, right? Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So what was it about these Jews that made them so noble? They, were, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So again, as custom, go into the synagogue. He starts reasoning with them, giving a case on the basis of the authoritative scriptures that they share together in common with the hope of a coming Messiah, which they both anticipate. One of them saying he's here and they're just going, he's coming. And so he's trying to connect the dots for them, right? So that's what's happening. But these Jews are like eager. They're, they're, and I think that idea of noble here is they're really open-minded. They're reasonable, right? They want to listen to what's being said and they want to test it up against the standard that they see of authority, which is the scriptures. And listen, they're doing it daily. So Paul's there. These guys are just devouring the scriptures, taking what Paul's saying and what he's proclaiming there in Berea, and, he, and they're just testing it up against scripture. Litmus test, scripture. Just, you know, everything he says, they're back in the book. Everything he says, they're back in the book. And they're trying to see, does what he say, says, does it actually hold water? You know, is check, checking the veracity of it, the truthfulness of Paul's claims, daily examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. What an, what an act of common grace that God has bestowed upon these, these Jews in Berea to actually want to examine the scriptures, want to look at it and even be open to the possibility that they've been missing something for a while. They want to know the truth. That's what they're after. And here's the result. Many of them, therefore, believed. Why? Because the faith that you believe is a reasonable faith. It's something that should be believed. It's a reasonable faith. Many of them, therefore, believed. And with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. Can you guess what they're going to do? You saw this coming? You've met in the book of Acts before, huh? Yep. They came there too. Oh, great to have you at the party. Paul's like, oh, fancy seeing you here. Okay. And they're there really for one purpose. Oh, it's not to go into the synagogue peacefully and reason from the scriptures. They're not that noble, right? They're there to agitate and to stir up, right? So agitating and stirring up the crowds, their thing for crowds, I guess, that worked for them in a sense. Back in Thessalonica, why not try it here in Berea? So they're stirring up crowds here in Berea. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, right? So get them to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remain there. It's interesting, Silas and Timothy, his two right-hand men, He's going to have them stay there. It, I think this clearly implies that the bigger target is on Paul's chest at this point as the main proclaimer and the main spokesman there. And so these guys are going to stay there somewhat under the radar with the newer believers. Paul's glad to have him there to help strengthen these young disciples. Um, and then it says this, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. 
So those who took Paul from there went all the way down to Athens, getting closer to like Corinth. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And so Paul, or Silas and Timothy stayed for a little bit in Thessalonica. Eventually, when Paul got to Athens, started work there, he called for them to rejoin him. And it's beautiful. You actually read in other parts of the New Testament, you start seeing Paul is going to send them back to these, some of these places. Like, for example, to Thessalonica to check on them, to see how are they doing. Paul carries a constant burden for all these churches. Could you imagine? He's got all these faces in his mind. He's going up there flipping the world upside down through the gospel in all these different places. And he's watching people being radically changed, but he knows it's going to cost them. He knows it's going to cost them in every place. He knows their faith is going to be sorely tested. And so he can't help but send back his right arm, you know, Timothy or, or Titus or Silas. He wants to send his workers to make sure that they're okay, you know, to check on them, to see how they are doing. And he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them. And uh, Timothy sends him a report of how things are going. And Paul is deeply encouraged by how these new believers are walking. And I just want to just give you a flavor, whet your appetite for a fresh reading, maybe in your own Bible intake time uh, with the book of Thessalonians. I'm going to go to 1 Thessalonians and just read some of the first parts just so you get a flavor of how he's speaking to these believers after he gets a report from Timothy about how they're doing. And we can get a sense that things are not going to be just, you know, the, the boat has been rocked, okay? And uh, there's no going back. And so Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So they're in the region of Macedonia, this much bigger region. And he's saying, your reputation of how you've received the gospel and how you've been walking it out has spread throughout the entire region. And I'm deeply encouraged that the saints are being strengthened by your example. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned, listen to this, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's glorious. Paul is so encouraged by how that work is continuing um, in in Berea, and then there in Thessalonica. Now, did you make any connections here in terms of comparing these two places and how the gospel was received between his time proclaiming in Thessalonica and his time proclaiming in Berea? What were some of the similarities? Right, The flow of thought 
in both paragraphs kind of starts starts with a visit to the synagogue, right? Pick the low-hanging fruit, right? As is his custom. Um, and then it highlights a positive response of faith. The gospel is the power of God to save. Where it is faithfully proclaimed, people will get converted. May not be on the first day or in the first week, or in the first month, or in the first year. But people will, by God's grace, get converted. The gospel is the power of God. And so we see a positive response of faith in both places. Uh, We also see a negative response of opposition. Um, We also see, I don't know if you highlight this in your mind, but just kind of a protective action of the supported brothers, these newer believers wanting to make sure that Paul is safe, but not just so that Paul is safe, but so that the gospel can continue on, right? We see that in both um, of these cases to make sure that that good news gets to another city. So I think that covers the basic similarities. Did you notice any differences? Any notable differences? Two main ones come to my mind. The Bereans, yep, they were more noble, right, than those in Thessalonica. So right there in the text, you can see we're meant to compare these two, right? That's why we're doing this right now. So they're more noble than, um, than those Thessalonians. Um, and the other one too, it's, this is a more of a minor difference, but uh, where did the source of opposition come from? Because in Thessalonica, it came from within, right? Uh, right there in Thessalonica, peop- the Jews that were jealous were stirring up the rabble, right? Making mobs, trying to, you know, trying to, um, yeah, undercut the gospel efforts there. Uh, But in Berea, it's different, right? Where did the opposition come from? Thessalonica, right? They they followed him. They picked up his tracks and he, they followed him to Thessalonica. But it wasn't, it wasn't that negative response. It was just a response being stirred up by those who were coming from, from Thessalonica. So a couple, couple differences there, and I'm going to tease them out a little bit. But last thing I want to do is I want to spend some time Stepping back and saying, what can we learn from this, right? It is, I think, instructive to be able to just read the book of uh, the letters, First and Second Thessalonians, for example, with more clarity and detail and even more uh, sense of the heart and the efforts that went into that church being planted. But what are some other things that we need to, need to take to heart in light of this word? I think one thing I want to say is, the first thing I want to say is to not lose sight of the big picture, right? To not lose sight of the big picture. Don't lose sight of the fact that God is sending a man throughout the known world with good news from, for undeserving people. Like this isn't just happening random. Like God is commanding this. God is providing for this every single step of the way because God wants to see sinners saved. This is the big picture. This is what the book of Acts is. The love of God put on lavish display as people who he has touched by grace then go out because they want to see others touched by grace. This is a story about God sending a man, a rugged apostle preacher throughout the known world with good news for undeserving people. A man, is, a man who is so gripped with a desire to glorify God, exalt his savior, to open the eyes of the blind and plunder souls from Satan's dark domain that he's willing to risk absolutely everything to make it happen. The earliest believers, they thought this way. Paul is obviously on the front lines, the biggest targets on him, right? But 
the brothers that associate with him felt it as well. And uh, so, but all of this is part of this bigger picture of what God is doing. And a lot has to be done for the world to be flipped upside down in these places for churches to be planted. Do you see that that's at the heart of the mission is for churches to be planted. And um, so we're witnessing here in this text, the founding of the church in Thessalonica, just like we watched the church planted in Philippi, you know, in the chapter before. And I think one thing that God wants us to take away and not losing this big picture here is he wants us to have a hunger to see churches planted here and abroad. Yeah. There was a time when there wasn't an FBC in Pierce. You know, some of you in this room remember that. 20, how many years? 23, 20, 23 years ago, there was no FBC in Pierce. And I was rechecking with Hopper the story that she's told. Um, Hopper's one of the matriarchs in the church, if you're wondering. Um, and Hopper's reminding me of the story of uh, like our first pastor, um, Mark Hoffman. He had a mentor who used to drive past this area, passed through piers for years, and he would pray that God would raise up a gospel preaching witness here. He would just pray, just pray. And you could just see at the time, you know, it's, I want to say it's barren. I mean, it's beautiful farmland, but spiritually a barren place. And God, in answer to this man's prayers and many others, saw to it that a church was raised up right here. This is such a gift to this community to have a strong gospel witness here. And uh, there's many, there's many small towns in central Minnesota that don't have a strong gospel preaching witness. That really burdens me. They, they don't have an FBC where they can invite their neighbor to hear the gospel. They don't, they don't have a place where they can go and gather with a group of spirit-filled believers and really be nourished in their own community. So as, as they go and share the gospel and people get saved, they have somewhere to invite them to grow and be nurtured and to covenant with one another, as we even got to see this morning with the member affirmation. Like they, they don't have that. And one of my desires is that we would say, hey, that not just, that was really cool what God did back in the first century through that rugged apostle preacher, Paul. You're like, wouldn't it be awesome what God might be pleased to do through this little rural church in Pierce, Fellowship Bible Church, to help see to it that other churches are planted in places that don't have the kind of wealth that we get to enjoy every Lord's Day. And so we, we want to pray for that and we want to prepare for that. Because some of you, God willing, will be able to go on a church plant. As God raises up more leaders and we plant a church, some of you as a core group could go out with those leaders and help start a work there. Wouldn't that be glorious to be part of that? And so we can't just sit back on our heels. We want to lean in and be equipped, right? And then when some other people leave to go do a good work like that, which will be painful but good, Right? We have a lot of time together in heaven someday, so sometimes we've got to have this temporary. I'm already feeling the, I'm already getting the feeling, right? I'm looking at Daniel, Daniel leaving soon, and Sam. Um, but, but, you know, there's, there's going to be a time for us to all be together, but there's, there's a need to spread this even right now. And when people go to help a work like that, other people are going to have to what? Step up, right? 
So you don't want to be caught back on your heels. You want to be leaning in, growing in the grace and the Lord, grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ every single day so that as God moves things around in his providence, we're responding to what he's doing and we're wisely anticipating it because this is part of the mission to see churches planted here, yes, but also abroad. Also abroad, we're praying for God to bless gospel efforts, missionary efforts, especially to some of the hardest places in the world that don't have a gospel witness at all right now. People, millions of people that have never even heard the name Jesus before. We want to lean into that. And part of how we're doing that is, is helping preparing future missionaries like uh, Daniel and Sam, and, but, but being praying for them. Some of you even should be praying, maybe the Lord wants me to go and partner with them, Right? But all of us are called to leverage even the resources that we have to see to it that this kind of work happens, not just here, but also abroad. Another thing that we can learn uh, from this is just some insight for our evangelism as we're sharing the gospel uh, with others. There's a lot of wisdom with starting with low-hanging fruit, right? The apostles come in to a place where there's a lot of common ground, you know, I would say even in this area, I would say we basically have a shared book, right? So we can, uh, we can start having conversations, reasoning with others on the basis of the scriptures because we do with a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people, you have a shared um, belief that the Bible is the word of God. That's a place to, that's a place to start. So pick the low-hanging fruit. Um, and to recognize with this, that there's, there's a place for apologetics. There's a place for reasoning. There's a place for defending our faith, showing from the scriptures um, and, and even breaking down other people's bankrupt worldviews to poke holes in them and help them see how they're never going to be satisfied in the worldview, in the faith that they have, right? But they need to come to Christ. They need to come to Christ. And so there's a place for um, giving arguments for the faith. Um, but even as we recognize that and the human responsibility we have to seek to persuade other people, maybe just pause there for a second. Do you realize as Christians we're called to be persuasive? Like we're actually called to believe something enough where we want to persuade someone to believe what we're, what we're saying. We should care enough about something that we would want to persuade someone to believe it. That's what we saw Paul doing. But Beyond the human responsibility and seeking to persuade, we also want to recognize God's sovereignty in salvation and remembering that we can persuade till we're blue in the face. Like we can persuade, we could lay out all the heights of eloquence we possibly can to try to explain the points and why people need Christ and help people connect the dots. You might be like, man, I'm connecting dots all the time. But their wires are crossed and you, you can't make it happen. And so God like he did for Lydia in chapter 16, has to open the heart. He has to open the heart. So even as you're laboring with all your powers of persuasion, you're also praying like crazy for God to do a supernatural work in the heart. So keep that in mind, that yes, we have a responsibility to persuade. Maybe you need the emphasis there right now. Um, but, But also, maybe you're persuading and you're just feeling like it's all on you and you need to recognize that this is a work of God that I need to pray earnestly for. And as we are evangelizing, this is probably one of the big points to take away if I had to summarize 
you could say, expect the gospel to be believed and opposed everywhere it goes. Expect the gospel to be believed and opposed everywhere that it goes. We see that in this text. It helps us just kind of get our expectations right. If we're going to share the gospel with people in our spheres of influence, should we expect everybody just to fall on their knees? No, we should expect some to to get the rabble going, you know, and cause a riot. Okay, maybe not a full riot, but, uh, you know, to not like what you are doing. And so think about how Paul's mindset is reflected, not just in the passage that we looked at, but think about his words from 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17, as we go down the home stretch here. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So with this godly sincerity, Paul's saying, he's recognizing though, that when he brings the gospel to places, just as when we bring the gospel to places, we are going to be the aroma of death to some and the aroma of life to others. Some are going to respond in faith, in repentance, and some are going to respond in jealousy, in anger, in opposition, or just shut down. There'll be different responses to the gospel, but it will be believed and it will be opposed. And we want to keep both of those in our minds and not be surprised by it. I want to just, I'll just close with one last thought. And that is that uh, one of the takeaways we're meant to have is we're meant to be challenged by the example of the Bereans, but not fully in the way that maybe you would expect it. Uh, So hear me out. First, for those who are here that don't have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that aren't born again, that don't have a new heart that God promises in the new covenant. And when you're honest with yourself, you go, all this stuff, it just seems just so empty to me. And really my affections are not for this Christ and not for the gospel. You might even say that you're a Christian and that that you generally believe the Bible is true, but you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never leaned your whole soul. You never received and rested upon what he has done at the cross. And, um, And so you find yourself in this place, you know, if God gives you eyes to see, and I think this text gives us a prayer for you, and that is that God would give you an earnestness to search out the truth that you wouldn't respond like the Jews in Thessalonica, but that you would respond like the Jews in Berea. That you would have a heart to follow the truth wherever it leads, even if it means flipping your world upside down. God is wanting to do that in your life, to flip your world upside down as you turn away from your sins and you put your trust in Christ He's wanting to rescue you. That's what this whole mission is all about. And so my prayer for you is that God would give you an earnestness to daily search these things out, to start knocking on doors of other Christians that you know that, are, that seem to be the real deal, to start asking them, start inquiring, start pressing in, and that God would give you this common grace to just actually want to know 
the truth and not turn a blind eye to it. Because the reception of the gospel is of utmost and eternal importance. Paul wrote in his second letter to the Thessalonians, and I want you to, I want you to hear this because it brings out kind of a double edge when it comes to this. Some are going to believe, some are going to reject the gospel. And if that's you this morning that you don't believe yet, I just want you to hear both sides of this. So it says this in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to pick up in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Talking about the believers who are suffering because of their faith right now. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He's comforting the Christians that are suffering at the hands of unbelievers. And he's saying, you will be comforted, but they will be judged on that day when Christ comes back. They will suffer, it says, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at, among all those who believed because our testimony to you was believed. And so for us as believers, we are looking forward to marveling at Christ when he comes back. My fear is that some here, you're not ready to marvel. You're not marveling now, you're not gonna marvel then, right? So my heart for you and God's heart for you in this text is that you would believe the gospel and not disobey the gospel. You'd believe this good news and that you would have an earnestness to land your soul there um, until it lands safely. And it's in a strange way, I think that this example of the Bereans is not just a prayer that we as believers might have for unbelievers, that God would give them an earnestness and a a reasonableness and an open-mindedness to listen to the truth, but that we would also, in a sense, have a fire lit under us as believers. Think about it this way. These Bereans aren't even Christians yet. And they are examining the scriptures every day. They have such a confidence in the authority of scripture that it is the ultimate litmus test for truth. And they have such a confidence in its clarity that it can be understood. That they are studying it earnestly, daily, testing everything by it. And I would just say, I think the Berean example sadly puts a lot of born-again Christians to shame. And I'm saying, if these people without the Holy Spirit, by God's common grace, are willing to lean in like this, how much more should the blood-bought people of God who have the Holy Spirit and all the tools and the community resources possible to, to really lean into the scriptures not do it? And so take that as a fresh exhortation and a little kick in the pants from the Bereans. <laughs> These unbelievers. Because in a sense, one sense, like, I don't want to be like them in the sense of being an unbeliever, but man, we need to get after it in the Word because God has written a book. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you for the blessing of being able to see your gospel flip the world upside down. We thank you, Lord, that you, by grace, have flipped our worlds upside down. Lord, I thank you for doing that to me when I was 17 years old, flipping my world upside down. As uncomfortable as it was, I praise you for it, Lord, and I pray that you'd flip many worlds upside down. Lord, I thank you for the spread of the gospel. I thank you that it is your mind and heart behind the whole operation. Lord, I thank you for the blessing of being able to see these churches planted. I pray that it would increase a hunger in all of us to see more churches planted, even in rural areas that are often forgotten in Minnesota. Lord, and also the hard-to-reach places around the globe that are most resistant to the gospel. Would you be pleased, Lord? Would you be pleased through our prayers, through our giving, through our gospel efforts and leaning in, Lord, would you be pleased to see to it that more churches come into existence and that they'd be faithful gospel preaching churches. And Lord, I pray um, that even as we pray for that, that we'd also prepare for that. I pray that you'd help your people to lean in and get grow in grace and knowledge and be equipped so that every one of us would be able to sit down at one level or another and reason with others about the Christ. Lord, I pray that that would be our joy more and more, that we'd be more and more equipped to do it, that we put in the daily effort and pursuit necessary to see Jesus more clearly every day and to worship him more devoutly every single day. Lord, I thank you for your grace that covers our failures. I thank you for your grace that covers even our failures to just take your word as seriously as we should and give it the attention and the effort that we should that we're put to shame in some ways by these noble Bereans. Lord, I pray that their example would indeed light a fire under us. How much more is expected of the children of God? And how much more are you able to stir that up? So Lord, stir that up in your church for the glory of your name. And now bless us, Lord, as we continue to sing to you and glorify your name for being the God who saves. In Jesus' name, amen.